Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by former Congressman and Senator of Missouri, Jim Talent. Roger and Senator Talent discussed the 2021 report of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, where Senator Talent serves as a commissioner. Their conversation included China's trade practices, as well as their activities in the Xinjiang and Hong Kong regions. Senator Jim Talent, welcome to Reaganism. Uh, It's great to be with you, Roger. For our listeners and viewers, Uh, They may know you served in the U.S. House of Representatives uh, in the 90s, and then you were U.S. Senator from Missouri, or Missouri. We'll get into that in a second. uh, Right. That's the most important important issue we'll discuss. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Until 2007, uh, there uh, you were on the Armed Services Committee, as well as other committees. Uh, Since leaving the U.S. Congress, uh, you've done a variety of things, uh, focusing a lot on national security and national defense. We're senior advisor for the Romney campaign, other campaigns. Now you spend a good chunk of your time on the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Bit of a mouthful. Right. Senator Town, just give us a quick sketch on, on what that commission is. It's been around for some time, but it seems to matter more than ever uh, today. Yeah, it's the Senior Advisory Commission of the Congress, created by the Congress to advise the Congress on Chinese-related affairs. And so uh, the commission puts out a report, uh, about a 550-page report every year, uh, surveying the American-Chinese relationship from both an economic and security standpoint. And we also put out recommendations, numerous staff papers, et cetera. But the, the commission is a creature of the Congress and a servant of the Congress, Uh, It is bipartisan, six Republicans, six Democrats appointed by the different leaders of the two houses of Congress. And our reports almost always come out unanimous and and always are are consensus reports. So we might have one dissent on a particular point, but we we operate in a very bipartisan way. We're going to jump into the work of that commission. But before we do... When you were in the Congress, either in the House of Representatives or in the U.S. Senate, did you focus on China? Was this something that you kept an eye on during the 1990s uh, and in the first decade of this century? I know you focus a lot on domestic policy, uh, labor issues, of course, something that you spend time on, but also on defense issues through your service on the Armed Service Committee. Was China always there in your mind, or is this something that you focused on the year since leaving office? No, it was, I can't say that uh, the threat from China or the reality of China was something at the front of my mind through most of my service. Occasionally it would come up. I did a lot of work trying to get the Navy, for example, to pursue hypersonics, uh, which we all wish they had done with a greater energy and vigor in the aughts. Um, but that was during the long period when American policy, uh, really from presidents of both sides of the aisle, was to engage China and facilitate its rise. Um, there was a great article uh, that Dan Blumenthal did um, 
uh, oh, a couple of months ago for National Review when he went over that. And really what happened was we, and I say we because I bear my share of the responsibility for the decisions in which I participated, um, considered only the potential upsides of this and never really sat and thought, what is the downsides if they don't reform and react the way that we all kind of think they would or are assuming they're going to? So, uh, no, it, it began to come into focus, I think, in the Congress in the middle of the Obama years. And then, of course, when Trump became president and really, I think, dragged our policy into regarding China into the 21st century, uh, that's when the Congress really began to react. And of course, what you're referring to when you were in Congress was the outlook of, well, if we were to go ahead and engage with China, allow them to liberalize economically, entry into the World Trade Organization, of course, is what most people point to as that pivotal decision that gave them all the benefits of the free market system and benefit from uh, the trading opportunities, then eventually China would politically liberalize. And of course, we've seen, and I imagine the piece from Dan Blumenthal you referenced in National Review highlighted, well, of course, it didn't play out that way. China's no. with all the benefits of the free market system while remaining a, a communist system uh, and in many respects, exploiting uh, the free market system yes. uh, to strengthen their autocratic and communist form of, of government. Where do you think the people in Missouri were on this? Uh, I actually think most of them would probably have been ahead of us uh, in figuring it out. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, look, the assumption was that the global system and particularly the economic system would change them. And what we now see is that they're changing the system. As a matter of fact, uh, we did a, a part of our report uh, last year was a whole chapter on what their global ambitions really are. And it is to replace uh, the norm-based system, a system based on rules and, and the assumption that the countries would relate to each other according to rules and norms. They want to replace that with a hierarchical system with them at the top. It's kind of an updated version of the old Chinese imperial system, Qingxia, with, with certain Marxist-Leninist assumptions added into it. And uh, I think it's fair to say that most people in Washington were late to the game, but not everybody. And I think a lot of people in the heartland of the country knew there was something wrong with so much of our domestic manufacturing base going overseas and a lot of it to China. Changing the system is their objective. If you're talking to a constituent from the north in Missouri or from the south in Missouri, if I got that right, can, how would they see that impacting their life? Like, what would that change in, the, in terms of the way they think uh, the world order ha was and, and now would be right. under the Chinese leadership? What's a, what's a tangible example of how that would kind of What difference does it make to them? Well, yeah. for example, as you know, uh, China asserts sovereignty over the or over the virtually the entire South and East China Sea, right? So they claim that that is their territorial waters. And if and when they acquire the power to enforce those sovereignty claims, and they are moving to do that, that was that's what the reclaimed uh, uh, reefs are all about in the South China Sea, for example, they will start enforcing those sovereignty claims. So they could very well say, look, um, the Vietnamese market's our market. You can't ship to Vietnam. Or you can't without paying us, you know, what they would not call, but which would be a kind of tribute. In other words, interfering 
with the right of the United States to move trade and travel in the world on equal trades, uh, on equal basis with everybody else, which has always been viewed as a vital national interest of the United States. Not to mention that in order to enforce their sovereignty claims, they'll want to reduce, they want to exclude our influence from the Far East and reduce our allies to some form of a modern kind of vassalage, right? Which is kind of a problem because we have, of course, we're bound by treaty and honor to defend Japan, to defend the Philippines, the Australians, right? And, so and this is a, so so you're kind of connecting. You are connecting, I should say, military power and the Chinese economy and their interest in in, in having control control over trade. I mean, is it that explicit Do you, in your oversight of, of this commission? Sure. See this plan they're, they're, Yeah, they're, they're more and more explicit about what they want to achieve and why. This is the community of common human destiny. They talk about uh, reassert. And look, it, 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 there's a sense in which the, the Chinese, China is, of course, a proud country with a proud and highly capable people and a history of leadership and dominance in Asia. I mean, they view themselves as the middle kingdom for a reason. They think they're coming out of a century and a half of weakness, and they're now asserting their place in the world, and this is how they envision it. And what they see, the world system, if you will, is one imposed by the United States uh, in order to advance our interests. Well, there's a sense in which that's true, of course. We and our allies midwife this system it comports with our values and we have prospered under, but, but it's a fair system. It's a system where, you know, the rights of peoples uh, are not determined by power and size. And they do occasionally just say, look, uh, you know, China is a big country and these other countries are small countries. And that's just the fact. And they said, it's their ambassador to Sweden said, look, for our friends, we have fine wine. For our enemies, we have shotguns. It's wolf warrior diplomacy. And they've been getting more and more uh, explicit about it. Um, and from their point of view, it's a righteous system, right? So what we have here is a classic conflict between a, 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 the existing hegemon and a rising hegemon and two nations that perceive their vital national interests in vitally different ways. One other point, Roger, I should I say, <clears throat> since they don't recognize functionally the rules of the system, they don't see anything wrong with stealing technology with siphoning off the wealth of other countries. And they've been doing that to the United States and will continue doing it. Those are a form of attacks upon the homeland, these cyber attacks. So the security of the United States is at stake. Um, so the two most vital interests we have are homeland security and, and our right to, to move trade and travel in the world, and they're both at stake. Yet, in the state in which you reside and you represented for years, um, big ag, agriculture is, is, is an important part of the economy. China is critical to American agriculture. How do you reconcile the dependence we have, the United States, our economy, on selling in to China? And, and how do you yeah. manage that interest with the security interest you just articulated? You're, you're you know, going back to this commission, it's, it's security, but also economic. And yeah. I got to imagine you have friends and, and you know, former constituents and that need that market. How does that play out? Yeah. 
That is the $64 question, as my daddy used to say many years ago. I'm not sure where he get. I assume there's some kind of quiz show in his time that had the $64 question, the hardest one. That's the hardest question on an operational level. I mean, strategically, I think Washington has shifted on a bipartisan in a bipartisan way. We can get into how I think the Biden administration is handling that. But then we get to the next level, you know, as well as I, is operational. Well, on a security standpoint, you know, in terms of armed forces, there's a lot of difficult issues there. You run the strategy commission operational concepts. So the really difficult area is in economics, because I don't know in the history of the world that we've ever had a competition between two great powers like this in the context of a globalized economy in which both were very heavily intertwined and in which their respective economies were very heavily intertwined. This is one time, maybe one of the only times I actually ask people to give Congress a little bit of a pass. This is hard to figure out. How do we decouple in a way that protects our technology, uh, our industrial base, our security, but in a way that does not generate costs uh, in a way that hurts our technology and our security uh, and our industrial base. There's, we confronted this to some degree. There's some nuance there, right? You're using this uh, kind of inside the beltway language of decoupling, but you know, what yeah, we would okay. separate from China as it relates to perhaps areas that are most sensitive to our national security, but that implicitly allows for continued economic integration with China. Right. Uh, in areas where we wouldn't have that vulnerability, I would assume agriculture may be one of those. Although one I see of those John, where we can, yes. Right, I see John Deere also, right now is using autonomous technology for 21st century tractors, which you can imagine would have some national security application because we're worried about data. Go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted you. What, certainly. I, I was interrupting you. It's your, it's your show. <laughs> uh, yeah, one of the things we have to consider, Roger, is, okay, we do things like the tariffs or the sanctions or whatever. What are they going to do? And we know that agriculture is an area that, where they will hit. And we know that they can impose damage on us. My bean producers, my soybean producers, took a huge hit because of this. And they're getting their beans now from Brazil, largely. So getting part their beans of, from Brazil, is that what you're saying? Yes. Part of, part of our, our operational strategy going forward needs to be to anticipate those. And OK, so how can we protect vulnerable parts of our economy from the responses that we know are going to be coming? And this is going to force us to think in new terms. Um, I, well, I'll just put it this way. When, when I've testified before the Congress on this, I've likened it to the immediate post-war era when Truman and Eisenhower built the architecture of tools that we used to prosecute that competition. That's what Congress is doing now. It is reforming the national security architecture and building new tools that will allow us better to protect these important interests that you're talking about. And it's the economic side is by far the most difficult. Um, we're not going to get this overnight, and we should have started doing it 10 years ago. I mean, I wrote my first column about this in 2013, called it China Rising. And uh, we should have figured this out before we did. So these are, these are challenges. One of the recommendations in the Commission's report, this is the China 
U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission report called for the U.S. to restrict the ability of U.S. investors uh, to purchase Chinese stock that is listed on U.S. exchanges. So you could have a Mm -hmm. Chinese company, Chinese tech company is a popular one that is listed on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. The Economic Commission, Security Economic Commission would say, hey, we shouldn't allow U.S. investors to buy equity in those companies. Explain that one. And and my sense is that relates to the point you're making before about how we have to decouple in a smart way and really kind of start developing these tools uh, that are kind of more forward looking uh, as it relates to China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are several signals that we were sending to the Congress with this. And I think many leaders in Congress are already aware of this, of course. Okay, so one of them is simply from the question from the standpoint of investor security. In other words, our we want to protect our investors. Uh, so uh, China does not regulate its publicly held companies in the same way that we do. There's there's very little transparency. The economy is full of bubbles. Uh, so a lot of these investments, it's very, very difficult to assess risk. And I don't think investors are really aware of that. Plus which government policy in China, because there is no rule of law effectively can change overnight. And we've seen that, for example, with what they've done to the to the ride sharing companies, to the private tutoring talking companies. talking about a company like Didi, where right. it was planned to be listed I think it was NASDAQ, may, may have that wrong. And ultimately, Xi and the Communist Party came from on high and said, no, you won't. Right. And a lot of people had bought shares or, 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 or had invested money already. And then they turned around and basically uh, put a, a leash, a short leash on the company as a result of a change in, in government policy driven by Chinese domestic political considerations. And people lost a lot of money almost overnight. As you know, they're supposed to comply with our accounting procedures as American companies do, and they don't, okay? Now, another issue that we got I wanna, into I wanna is, drill down on that one before we go into other reasons sure. why uh, your commission went ahead and, and made this recommendation it's kind of interesting because usually the capital markets and our free market economy generally takes the view is that capital should be allowed to chase opportunity and that opportunity could be risky or less risky and let the investor figure it out. So that's point one. Why would that kind of approach not apply in a case of a, of a Chinese entity trading in a U.S. stock market? And second, Making a broader point, it's interesting in the case of ride sharing, like you just mentioned, Didi, the decoupling there, that is the separation between China and the United States, wasn't carried out by an act of Congress, even a recommendation your commission. It's the Chinese who are engaging in decoupling. Yeah. It's the People's Republic of China. It's the Chinese Communist Party that's doing that. Almost they're the ones driving this decoupling before we are. So I'm curious if you get right. a response to both. Yeah, well— I, I want to get to the national security aspect of the issue as well, but um, I think nobody's ever had to try and assess risk in this kind of an environment. Mm-hmm. 
I think in, investors operate on assumptions that companies listed and publicly listed on American stock exchanges, because we have a refined rule of law and a mature system, are complying with basic accounting rules regarding what they're reporting. They're not. <laughs> They've been supposed to by an act of Congress ever since Dodd-Frank. It's never been uh, it's never been implemented. There's also issues for passive investors where their companies get listed on indexes. The indexes are unregulated, as you know. And you can never be certain how much pressure has been put in the background, how much leverage has been put by the Chinese government through, because their tentacles are all through the international economic system. To get things done, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, like I'm looking for them under the beds, but this is the reality of it. Okay, now this is not to mention the fact that we are there is growing competition and tension between the two governments. So at almost any given time, either government might do something that very substantially affects these investments. Now I think you're right. There are classes of investors where I think it's fair to say, look, you should be sophisticated enough to know. Right. But when, we're, when if I'm still in the Senate and I'm thinking about my retired teachers, right, my retired public employees who are assuming when their pension funds put money in this, that there's a, there's a rule of law, some adequate protection. And remember, there's no way to recover. Nobody's going to be able to sue in Chinese courts to recover from Didi or anybody else for what they've lost here. And I've said this to my friends in the Congress because you know, as a politicians, we have to understand that. So you could go home sometime and have a huge number of your, you know, retirees lost enormous amounts of money and asking you why they weren't aware of this danger. So there's that end of it. The other thing briefly, Roger, is the Chinese have a huge problem with debt. I mean, so do we. But their debt and most of it or, or huge amounts of it is corporate debt and they're running out of capital. And they're trying to get capital. Explain this hoping... more because most people think the debt problem resides with us. Obviously, our deficits are compounding year over year through you know our big emergency appropriations and you know. Oh yes, we and we've made it much worse in the last year. I mean, we can get into that if you right. want. But but the Chinese, but they, you're saying, have their own issue with debt. How does that play? Oh, into it's enormous. They're not ten feet tall. They have huge domestic issues. We reported on, on this in our in our report, and one of them is enormous amounts of debt. That's the result of a couple of things. One of them is, is they don't have any private banking system, and they uh, still about forty percent of their economy is owned by outright state-owned companies, and there's an enormous amount of waste in that that they're that they're having to support. In addition, beginning with the two thousand eight fiscal crisis, they have they have managed these various crises and slowdown and recessions by spending enormous amounts, injecting enormous amounts of money into the economy that they don't have. So they have a debt of like 250% of GDP. And a lot of that, because again, you do not have a regular uh, banking system, a clear taxing system. It's moved around from books to books. Nothing is transparent. And it's showing up now in bubbles, for example, in the real estate market, sure. which you're seeing. There's enormous investments in that. They're trying to draw in American capital and American management expertise 
And so we are reacting as, as a commission advising Congress, which is trying to protect American national security. And we're saying, look, maybe this time we shouldn't sell the rope to our enemies that they're going to use to hang. I mean, at least look at this, right? Uh, now, at the same time, we do recognize, and, and the members of Congress do also, that we don't want to cut off our noses despite our faces here. So this, this is an issue about how this should be done. The only other thing I'll add, Roger, is and we have a really good chapter on that this, this um, no, it was last year, actually. No, it's this year. I get confused. Um, on the ways in which the Chinese government controls nominally private companies. It's very interesting. I don't know if we have time so, to talk about yeah, well, it. Give us a minute on that. I think what you're getting at is this distinction between the government and a private entity. Almost we need to jettison our construct right. that we, we have do. here in the United States that private entities are entities that don't sell necessarily, well, don't, don't rely on government funding. That's certainly not controlled by the government. Many, most don't even sell to the government. Whereas in China, that line uh, doesn't really exist, right? I mean, that's, that, that's yeah. what you're emphasizing. What I tell the senators and members is, is for policy purposes, assume the line does not exist. Okay. An economist can argue about it a little bit, but assume it doesn't exist. Well, for example, if the Chinese government buys a minority stake and they've done a lot of buying in their stock market for a lot of reasons, some of that was domestic. Okay. They have a 1% stake. Chinese law and practice gives them enormous influence. It's not like a, a, they're basically, they're like the majority stakeholder. Xi Jinping in particular has insisted on every company having Communist Party committees, including, by the way, American ventures there. And these Communist Party officials function as like another state. They can interfere in the choice of executives. They can interfere in investment decisions. You, often that's local or provincial, and they do. Their subsidy funds are so great that they can control through the money that that so they invest. By that is these companies are reliant on government subsidies, and, and right. so truly they're they're not. The whole banking system is controlled by the government. So if you want to do business with a bank, there's so many lines in. Now on top of this, their system is extremely opaque, and they built these enormous holding companies. So you may think you're investing in a sportswear Chinese company, but it's actually owned by another company that produces drones for the People's Liberation Army. So the profit they're making there is getting shifted over. See? And it's, yeah, so it's, it's a good a example of how, you know, the, the, the Western kind of corporate structures that are used for different investment funds, you know, you can think about private equity and the way they're structured and all you get all down uh, to the to the actual entity, the company in China, they do that, but ultimately it leads not to the private equity entity, it's it's to the People's Republic of China. Let yes, me, or state controlled just, or yeah, let, let's just pivot um, because right now we've been discussing kind of the economic suite of arguments and the risks involved in investments in China, talking about how the government's involved and there is, you know, in, in the so-called you know, air quotes here, private sector. But you come at this commission and your work on China from my experience, mostly through the harder edge, looking at the security right. issues. Uh, which I want to jump into, both in terms of what the People's Republic of China is doing on the security front and the, and the challenges it's presenting to our security, U.S. national security, 
But you are going to make some arguments in terms of why the U.S. investments in China poses a national security risk. Connie, why start there? Well, again, because uh, the competition uh, with, with, with China, indeed with, with Russia as well, great power competition is now occurring across a number of domains, right? So it is. It always has, but now it's it's particularly evident. So military is one. Economic is another. Diplomatic or narrative is a third. Uh, the tools of sharp power, you know, cyber and disruption of the other. So it's occurring across all of those domains, and they're all interrelated, which are which our adversaries or competitors understand better than we do. And so we have to think in terms of all of these different domains and tools. I know that sounded. You know, very Washingtonian, but it, it you know, it's it, it. Part of what's happening here is that our leaders are trying to grasp the unique nature of this, and so it's necessary to think somewhat in those terms. Now, I'll give you an example of how this works in the military context. As you know, one of the remaining obstacles or question marks in terms of the PLAs, the People Liberation Army's ability to conduct a successful invasion of Taiwan is, do they have the amphibious capabilities? Do they have the shipping to land sufficient numbers of PLA troops, right? Well, they don't have sufficient lift if you just look at the PLA's assets. But they have been deliberately modifying their ferry boats, civilian ferry boats and barges, to adapt them to those purposes, and they have been training with them. And as you know, they, they have a very deliberate program nationally of civil-military fusion, where they're trying to fuse the civil and military segments in a way that they had never done before. Now, there's a question how successful they've been with that. Personally, I don't think that they've made as much progress as I feared they would. But you can see the crossovers here, the synergies they're trying to achieve, Roger. Let, let, let and, me play skeptic. Let me play skeptic on that, just to sharpen the point. As you know, in the United States, our U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy relies, at least for their military contingency planning in a situation of, of armed conflict, on you know the, the craft program. This is where you take you know Civil Reserve Air Fleet, you know, commercial. Uh, carriers to transport material or troops to a war zone. We went through Iraq and Afghanistan relying on commercial 747s and 767s and 777s to take our troops uh, and material to the theater of war. Why is it different here with China? Why is it any more nefarious? I could see a CEO that does business, a U.S. CEO that does business with these companies saying, what do you mean? We get the same ask of our military to deal, help us in the context of armed conflict. Why shouldn't, why should we punish Chinese for seeking to do the same? Well, I don't think this is not a tactic that I would say is immoral or illegitimate, but it is being used for ends that will be uh, destructive of the security of the American people, right? And highly oppressive as we are seeing in Xinjiang province, in Hong Kong, uh, in Mongolia, in Tibet. So ultimately, I mean, I'm not saying that that any country like violates some norm 
if if they if they plan to use their civilian sector to support the military in time of war but it's it, i mean some tactics are illegitimate as you know uh, like killing you know needlessly killing civilians and that kind of thing but um no it's just the point i was making is that this intertwining um is explicit uh with regard to the civilian and the military and so when we are supporting their civilian economy, we can expect, there's no question, it will have, directly will have, uh, an impact on their uh, military capabilities of the PLA. And we see that in a lot of different ways. So if we're concerned about the PLA being able to conquer Taiwan, for example, or take the Senkaku Islands, which is 150 miles, they're 150 miles north east of Taiwan, and they belong to Japan, which is an explicit treaty party of the United States, in which Beijing claims uh, we'd better pay attention. Got it. So so as we assess their capabilities, we can't limit our analysis and our look at what is formally part of the People's Liberation Army, the PLA. The civ-mil fusion that you referenced before needs to be part of the calculus, precisely because, as I hear you saying, it's a great point. It's the ends that we have to look at. They are seeking yeah. to take the Senkaku yeah. Islands. They are actively planning to take Taiwan. And that's where I want to go to next. A uh, couple of kind of the harder security questions, which he spent a lot of time thinking about and writing about, often in, in National Review and other publications. Taiwan, that's what everybody's looking at from the security mm -hmm. standpoint. We have a pretty old policy the one China policy, where we live in this fiction land. We recognize, of course, the People's Republic of China, but at the same time, we support the independence of Taiwan uh, through diplomatic relations, though not recognizing them as a formal as China, and through security support. Uh, it's this so-called strategic ambiguity. Senator Talent, does this policy still make sense in the 21st century, when China is this growing power, the second largest economy in the world, soon to be perhaps the first, no longer just a regional power, but a great power, does it make sense? Do we need a different policy that really takes stock of the way the world is today, not the way it was in the 1970s when we created it? Right. You're talking about strategic ambiguity, Roger, basically. Yeah. Should we continue yeah. with that? Yeah, I, it's not the policy that concerns me. Um, and I, I'm fine with keeping the the policy. It's not the words that we're saying. It's the actions that we're taking or not taking that concern me. So, first of all, I don't know anybody who who thinks that we're we're the mainland. We're if the PRC could do to Taiwan what they have done to Hong Kong that this would not be a very highly significant forfeit to America's security and vital national interests. Explain okay. that as if I'm one of your constituents in Missouri. Why does that? Why does Taiwan matter almost, I hear you saying, as much if not more than what the People's Republic of China did in their assault on freedom oh, in Hong Kong? It, it, it matters much, much more. Um, well, first of all, from a strategic point of view, if you were on the Chinese mainland looking east, you would see the first island chain, 
right? It's really a, a long series of islands. It starts with Japan and the Korean Peninsula and then extends down uh, all the way down to really the Southwest Pacific. People argue about how far it goes. I mean, some of that is arbitrary. And Taiwan is right in the center of it. That first island chain, <coughs> without control of that, <coughs> Beijing does not control their strategic environment and their ability to release forces in other places, including, you know, in the Western Pacific, further east is very substantially inhibited. So from a military point of view, it's, I mean, Taiwan is, is just hugely important. Um, the second point of view is our whole alliance structure in the Far East, on which everybody agrees we need to depend. I mean, you, everybody, you know, agree, you know, we don't want to do all this alone, right, and, and facing them, depends on our ability to, to be a security guarantor, right? That's what we are bringing to a large extent to these alliances. And it is very clear the United States has on many occasions indicated that it is our policy that Taiwan and the mainland, at minimum, work out their differences peacefully and without coercion. That's what the Taiwan Relations Act says, for example. So even though they're not a formal treaty part, part, partner, everybody's under the expectation that, that we are going to act to prevent this from occurring. And so if it were to occur, if they were to invade or otherwise coerce them into doing it, you would see, I think, a great danger of a collapse of really our whole policy in the Far East. So two follow-ups um, on, follow on that. First, do you think that China, that is the PRC, could essentially take over Taiwan in the way that they took over Hong Kong, which wasn't with a military operation, an amphibian, any assault, but it was this kind of uh, in the gray zone combination of, of, of political pressure and exploiting uh, uh, and leveraging domestic uh, actors. Do you think we could, they, they could kind of do that in China? And the second, excuse me, in Taiwan, the second question is, if it was a military-style attack or the occupation I've just described, Hong Kong-style, let's call it that, do you think the U.S. military and the U.S. government has the ability to date to stop it? Well, on the second question, I'll take that one first. So actually, the commission assessed this year that the Chinese are at or near an initial invasion capability, which would mean the ability to land sufficient numbers of troops to, yes, conquer, you know, Taiwan, even against uh, the opposition, even were the United States to intervene. Now, an initial invasion capability is, by definition, a high-risk capability. So uh, that doesn't mean that they would be certain to succeed. Uh, and this has been their deliberate, as you know, I mean, this has been the priority uh, of uh, their the, the, the crash buildup over the last 20 years, the urgent buildup of the PLA over the last 20 years. One of the top priority missions has always been to achieve this capability they are training more and more intensively to do it. They are in, they're conducting incursions into Taiwanese airspace more and more intensively. Their rhetoric has changed. They're dropping words like peaceful resolution. 
Uh, and uh, the preparation has been increasing in pace. So the number of inter internet intermediate range ballistic missiles, for example, I mean, it's like gone up by two and a half times just in the last three years. So they're giving indications of doing it. Um, and there is concern. I mean, look, I look at the the outgoing of the last uh, Indo-PACOM commander uh, who projected the window, the famous now Davidson window, that they would probably try and do this by 2027. And certainly if if they are seriously considering doing it, there's a serious question about whether we could stop it at an acceptable cost to us, because otherwise they wouldn't be considering it. Right. That was always the status quo. You know, they might make noises, but they were never going to do it because if the United States intervened, it would fail spectacularly. Well, we're not in that. The, the cost is too high. In their mindset, they've they've done the military build up to a point where they could be assessing that the cost is too high for us to stop them and the cost is acceptable to them to carry it out. Right. Exactly. And which has been, again, the object of how they've sized and shaped their for one of the, the priority objects of how they've sized and shaped their for their uh, forces in the region. Now, on the first question, will it be necessary for them to do that or can they use a combination of coercive sort of tactics and uh, disinformation and disruption to to force Taiwan to knuckle under? That, that is, I think, what they hoped what Beijing hoped, and they would prefer not to do a military sure. effort. I mean, it's, it's inherently high risk. A landing of troops, as you know, is very difficult. Um, but I think the events of the last five or six years in particular in Taiwan have indicated pretty clearly that the Taiwanese are not going to go along with that. As you know, the election of President Tsai and then her re-election by record numbers, she represents a party that is going to insist on um, they won't say independence, but they're insisting on uh, maintaining uh, the Taiwanese democracy and freedom of action and freedom of discretion. And if you poll the Taiwanese people, it's increasingly every year. They don't, they don't want to get assimilated with the mainland. And what happened in Hong Kong just, just made that worse. So this is the concern of people in our world is so that we have... The, the dynamic in Taiwan... Uh as a result in part of, of China's actions in Hong Kong has perhaps convinced those in Beijing that political coercion uh, and other forms of disruption short of armed conflict and invasion will not be enough. And you know, the, the Davidson window that you referenced before perhaps suggests they're, they're increasingly thinking that the way to accomplish this, the best way, perhaps the only way, is through a military action. I think they'll, I mean, look, if we had to guess, I would expect them to try and combine all those chances to set up some scenario where they could make demands, ultimatums, um, all kinds of threatenings as Putin is now doing in Ukraine, but probably giving themselves some off ramps, depending on the reaction. Uh, in Taipei and the reaction in the United States and in other parts of the world, uh, and then see what happens. I would expect them to push. Now, the problem is, as you know, that can get out of control pretty easily, right? Uh, and we could get into sort of an escalation cycle uh, where they, they feel now that they have to move because the regime, it's important to remember, the regime 
like all highly authoritarian regimes, exists in fear of being overthrown or removed. Um, and so a major failure, if they were to suffer the kind of reputational failure that we suffered in Afghanistan recently, they would fear that the regime would be overthrown, or at least that the current leadership, Xi Jinping, would have to fear he would not be able to maintain power. He was not up to job. Let's uh, yeah. shift from the, the military side of this issue and, and move away from Taiwan, but sticking on, on China, of course, coming up soon, we'll have the Beijing Winter Olympics. Hugely important to Xi, an opportunity uh, to demonstrate to the world that, you know, once again, China is, 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 has arrived, continues to rise. Where should the U.S. be vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the U.S. participation in the Beijing Winter Olympics. The Reagan National Defense Survey showed that the plurality of Americans wanted a diplomatic boycott, more want an economic boycott. Some would even support a full-on boycott. How does this play, the Olympics play, into the, the greater kind of China equation as, as you look at it? Yeah, I think uh, if it if it is the kind of propaganda success that they are no doubt planning for, uh, it will be another, if obviously more minor kinds of defeat. And so we talked about the competition occurring in a lot of domains or a lot of areas. Well, one of them is narrative. Whose narrative is winning? You can think of it as kind of a international geopolitical form of PR. And they're pretty good at PR. I, actually, they have weaknesses with it. So, yeah, if this comes off as a big propaganda success for them, that's a bad thing for us. Uh, now, this is the sort of thing uh, that we're now talking on a tactical level. What, what do we do with regard to the Olympics? And I can see a lot of different ways of approaching it. But what we really needed was a plan, right? and not something we're sort of making up as we go along. So one possibility would have been to boycott if we had been able, had the tools and the ability to accompany that with a broader campaign to expose the Chinese narrative and what they're doing in Xinjiang province and other places, right? If it's a one-off, if it's the last minute kind of thing we do, then I think it's counterproductive because what it comes across, I mean, it's the difference between Carter and Reagan, right? So Carter, boycotted the Moscow Olympics, but in those contexts, it just came across as whining. It comes across as, oh, we don't like what you're doing, but we don't know what to do about it, right? So as part of a broader plan, I probably would have supported it. Failing that, or another possibility would have been, oh yeah, we'll send our athletes, but to do some planning and arrangements so some of those athletes protest what the Chinese are doing, the way Enos Cantor's doing, right? And do it under circumstances they can't censor from the world. We, Have three or four of those expressions. Yeah. Of course, yeah, of course the boycott is, is driven by China's genocide of Uyghur population in Xinjiang province. I mean, you, you referenced it a couple of times. That in its own right is a, is a strong statement. The Biden administration's carrying out this diplomatic boycott, other allies and partners are participating. Uh, so there was some strategic kind of treatment of it. it didn't have the, the, the plan and I think the effect that you've just outlined, it, it should have. 
what else can we do? Congress, for example, recently passed. It took perhaps too much effort required to, to, to get it before President Biden's desk. But restricting U.S. companies uh, from relying on labor in Xinjiang province and is creating lots of issues. And there's backlash on U.S. companies that work and sell into China. Uh, headline recently about Walmart getting slapped with cybersecurity kind of violation in China, but really it was a result of Walmart seeking to comply with this new law. Uh, how important and relevant is China and its treatment of the Uyghurs and what our State Department, our country calls the genocide of the Uyghurs in, in all of this? And, and are we emphasizing it enough, Olympics being just one example? Uh, I think it's Obviously, it's very important as a way. First of all, it's on such a scale. They're out Orwelling Orwell. I mean, it, out Orwelling Orwell. OK, Orwell. explain that. Because it is it, it realistically and chillingly. Is potentially the future, the picture of a boot in people's faces. It is a the the. the uh, technologically perfected system of oppression and surveillance that is intruding into the lives of people moment by moment in a way that totalitarians have never been able to do in the past. And they are doing that deliberately and using it as a model that they would like to export in one form or another. Okay, so this is the future. Uh, that Orwell envisioned, and it is terrifying. If if this is the direction to the extent that they're ex extending their influence that they're going to go. Now, this doesn't mean, I, I do not accuse the Chinese, the standing committee of the Chinese Politburo of being bloodthirsty. I don't think that they're doing this. They're doing it, it's, it's a tool for them. The Western province is very important. The one belt, one road goes through there. Chinese rulers have always been worried about stability in China. Uh, there are ethnic differences that could give rise to instability. I mean, they're doing it for practical purposes, which makes it, in a sense, all the more chilling. Uh, and we could be exposing it, and our leaders do from time to time. So it's an important way of contesting their uh, their narrative, Roger. You ask what we could be doing. Yeah, go ahead. This is the, this is the Reagan Institute, and I don't want the whole interview to go by without saying, okay, what would Reagan do? In, in these circumstances. He would be marshalling the power of American uh, ideals. I mean, we saw him do it. I did, I'm old enough. I remember 40 years ago, right? And how he did that. Another thing he'd be doing, Roger, is he'd be building up our defensive strength. I mean, it was on the back of the, of the Reagan military buildup that we won the Cold War. I mean, there were other things, but that was the foundation of it. He shifted the balance of power in Europe and in, in all over the world back towards the United States and put the aggressors on the defensive. I mean, and I wrote a column a few years ago, Roger, just entitled this, we need more ships, Right. exclamation point. Let's build some ships. I mean, we're outnumbered five to one in ships west of the, of the Hawaii. And so much of Washington is about saying why well, somehow that doesn't matter or that's okay. That's not okay. And it does matter, okay? But it, it, <laughs> Let's I get John Lehman back. Well, I want to go back because, you know, the, the buildup, which you lead on and emphasize, and certainly we focus on here, 
but it's it's needed for a contest which <laughs> you just outlined. It's between a state that will, you know, at Orwell, Orwell, which essentially is a country that is threatening freedom everywhere it goes, and a country which stands it's for freedom. It's incredibly intrusive. They're performing experiments on the Wagars. They lock them up in concentration camps. They can't move out of their houses without passes. They're taking their children away from them. I mean, it's, it's and remember, technology now empowers this right. with right. tools that Stalin never had available, that Mao never had available. I mean, imagine you talk about a dystopian type of future. This is what is happening to these people. And used to be there was limits to the totalitarians' power, if not their ambitions. That doesn't exist as much anymore. I mean, no it is now here. This is this is accessible yeah. to them. Uh, in a moment, we're going to have to shift to our lightning round, but I can't let you go. Can't pass up this opportunity to chat with you, Senator Talent, without getting your keen political eye um, to comment on where the Republican Party is. And the way I want to jump into that is we've just spent the better part of this dis discussion focusing on China. You look out not just at the midterms, but the future of the Republican Party. You get a lot of focus on big tech, a lot of focus on China. Um, how much is China animating the thinking of the Republican Party and the future nominee out in 2024? Do they, do they, does a party get it? Does this potential nominee in a few years get it? Or is this something that still is kind of lagging where, in terms of where it should be in the mindset of a future nominee in the party. Yeah, I, I, I really am very pleased um, with how many people I talk to on the Hill and of both parties, Roger, who do understand uh, almost instinctively and then come around to understanding what a threat this is. They are grappling, uh, you know, up here with everything that it entails and how to deal with it. And again, I have to say in fairness to them, I was never an institution guy in the Congress. In other words, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I I didn't run it down. Your 11 wrote, wrote that great book about it. I, you know, I lived up to my institutional responsibilities. I'm not a huge enthusiast for the Congress, but these problems are legitimately hard. I mean, this is, this is, this is not them blowing something simple like I think they've done with inflation or crime or other things, right? So, but I do think they understand the importance. And I think uh, as a Republican, I said, we're bringing to bear lots of, of, of up and coming people who are thinking so uh, constructively and powerfully about this. Tom Cotton, Mike Gallagher, I'm going to leave people out here. Um, and so, yeah, I'm actually very pleased about the direction we're headed to the issue is the hour is very late. I mean, we should have been doing this 10 years ago, right? And this is not a small thing. This is not, okay, we do the right things for six months and it fixes it. Uh, no. Uh, you know, you can change policies as a result of intention and capability, right? Okay, you can change intention quickly. We've changed intention. But I can't flip a switch and produce, uh, you know, a, a fifth generation fighter or a hypersonic yeah, missile out, you know, just because you've decided it's time. Right. Yeah. So you can't right. change capability quickly. We're going to have to 
end this conversation. But before we do, we're going to go to the lightning round. This is where we ask all our guests to give us their favorite book on President Reagan, their favorite speech by President Reagan, and favorite Reagan quote. We'll take all three, two, or whatever you have. Center talent. Well, the book is still The Age of Reagan by Stephen Hayward, and in part because uh, I love reading the chapter in there or, or the discussion in there on, on how President Reagan's thinking and policies shape uh, regarding the welfare system. He planted the roots that led eventually to the welfare reform bill that I was so active in, in helping to pass in 1996. So there's a lot about that that I can sort of relate to personally, and I just love it. a lot of the domestic discussion. Uh, I think quote right now is uh, because I think it's highly relevant in watching what our friends on the other side of the aisle are doing in crime and education and inflation and the border. And when Reagan said, you know, the trouble with our our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's that they know so much that just isn't so. In other words, they're pushing policies that are like. Okay, uh, like the new DA from Manhattan who's decided it's not important to prosecute armed robbers, people who hold up liquor stores with a gun, unless somebody gets shot or really feels like they're in harm's way. <laughs> you know, I, this is personal. My daughter work, works in the jewelry business, and, and she's been in stores that have been held up with guns. And I'll tell you, you feel in harm's way, but I, I, I digress. And so what was the other one that's book, quote, and... Uh, Your book, quote, and speech. Uh, the first, we really need a speech like the first inaugural, where he accurately diagnoses the problems, but he says, hey, we're Americans. We're going to solve this problem. We can do it. Senator Jim Talent, thank you so much for being on the show. We, we hope to have you back. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.